I would say to a, to the 16 year old college is really fun and you're going to meet incredible people who are going to challenge you. But it's going to be difficult in ways that you aren't going to grow. You're going to be faced with questions that seem either blatantly or painfully obvious to you or be pulled into intellectually dishonest arguments that kind of alienate you from yourself. This is Cameron Okeke. He was a graduating senior at the University of Chicago when that university published a letter to incoming freshmen saying there will be no trigger warnings, no safe spaces, no one will be sheltered from difficult or controversial ideas. Cameron appreciated that about the University of Chicago, which he considered challenging and where he grew as a person and as a scholar. He later received a degree at the Johns Hopkins University's Bloomberg School of Public Health and now works in Washington at the Justice Policy Center. But when that letter appeared, he wrote an editorial in Vox explaining why trigger warnings and safe spaces are not quite what the university made them out to be. He explained that universities are indeed there to challenge you. They are indeed there to make you think about difficult and controversial topics, but that that does not mean that everybody should be confronted with things that have nothing to do with intellectual discourse or intellectual inquiry. Cameron explained to me why he wrote this piece and what it means to be a student in today's universities, ready and willing to engage with the most difficult ideas, but not ready and willing to be led astray by fake and false intellectual controversies. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. So thank you so much. Today I'm really pleased, I'm very excited. I have Cameron Okeke on Think About It. He's a research analyst at the Policy Center at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., and you have a degree in, it's an MBE, which is a master's degree in bioethics from the Bloomberg School at Johns Hopkins, the School of Public Health. And you have a BA from the University of Chicago, where you actually majored in several different things from which I see from the website in biology, history, philosophy, and the social science of science and medicine. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So it's great. So Cameron, a couple of years ago, the University of Chicago issued this very well-known letter about campus climate, about its strong commitment to freedom of expression, and it framed that letter from the dean to the incoming students, I think about two years ago, by saying, we believe in freedom of expression and we do not support safe spaces. We do not support what they call trigger warnings. And in response, you wrote a very, I think, carefully argued explanation of what could be really meant by these things. And you took a position. So I wanted to just have you on the podcast mm -hmm. and share some of your ideas around that with you. You're now, you know, working in D.C. It's probably seems maybe like a long time ago for you, but I, so I really appreciate you coming back. And this topic hasn't gone away, clearly, from our national conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that actually surprised me the most about this is how what I thought was going to be like kind of a flash in the pan conversation around free speech and about safe spaces and trigger warnings. I thought that that was kind of one of those culture wars of the week conversation of the day type of situations. And I would say that in the last couple of years, it's actually become more of a topic of conversation with books being written, articles being written, larger, more robust and divisive protests new phrases being created, like no platforming people, it is truly turned into something that I never expected to get this big. I mean, as I spent more time and as I've gotten older, I'm looking into, into history and seeing how the conversations around political correctness and around safety and spaces have actually been perennial conversations, ones that have been around for a very long time. But still, the University of Chicago's letter finds itself in a very weird position. Even, even with all of the culture wars we're currently experiencing, this letter still stands out as being one of the oddest of them, I would argue, because I've never, I don't know what an intellectual safe space is. I don't know what that, even, that phrase means. Many people aren't. Even though the conversation has taken a lot of not great turns in a while, uh, many people still 
think and would argue that trigger warning, safe spaces, and disinviting speakers are three radically different issues, even from like a constitutional limits on free speech standpoint, very different issues, but also just like, you know, trigger warnings is more of a heads up type of situation. It's complicated, but that, there's no policies currently being put forth to ban trigger warnings on campuses. That's just not, not the case. Same thing with safe spaces. Like even if people are, have questions about which space should be used for what, whether the classroom should be a space or is a space for robust dialogue or not, that's a completely different conversation than a quote-unquote intellectual safe space. And so when I saw this letter, I was like, what is this? As a welcoming letter to kind of set the tone for people's experience with the university, it was very odd. So you had, at that point, you had been a student at the University of Chicago for a while, right? Yes, and, for about four years. And the letter was uh, for four years. So you were about to graduate, or you were graduating, mm-hmm. so you were senior, you mm-hmm. were going on to Hopkins. The letter was, I think I can, it's fair to say, it was not only intended for the incoming class, but it was meant to signal to the culture at large. And it got the reception mm-hmm. that I think, you know, the administration probably hoped for, that people, the University of Chicago now considers itself a leader in thinking about this. But as you mm-hmm. said, it threw in three different issues trigger warning safe spaces, intellectual safe spaces, and campus sort of hosting of controversial speakers. And it kind of mixed all these issues into one thing to say all of this falls under the rubric of robust debate, which is what we're all about. And therefore, none Mm -hmm. of these things are acceptable. So we take them one by one, because you wrote this kind of this essay, and I'll put it on the website, you know, for people to read it. Mm -hmm. You say, what do you think was behind this thinking? Why do you think the dean was motivated to send this as their welcoming salvo to the students? Say, hi, welcome here. It'll be tough. It'll be, you know. <laughs> it was a very surprising gesture. And also, you know, there's, I mean, if you want to say welcome to University of Chicago, it's hard. Like, that would be fair. I would say that that's fair. Grades are not inflated at University of Chicago. A 4.0 is quite a, is a dream, if, if anything, at the university. Is it as hard as it's reputed to be? Absolutely. Without a doubt. I will, I will say that the deep irony of this is that University of Chicago, as an institution that gave me an incredible skills for critical analysis, I then use those skills to, of course, analyze its own flaws. So actually, it's a testament to the quality of education University of Chicago gives that I'm able to articulate so clearly the flaws of the university's letter. Which, and the thing about it is, that's right. is that this letter clearly wasn't for new, for, for new students. And I don't know what the dean was doing because there are real legitimate fears that I have, and I think other students of color who are first-generation students, who are from low-income backgrounds, have when you are welcome to the University of Chicago. That is real, and you have to speak to that. And I think that a welcome letter, a quality one, would say, welcome to the University of Chicago, it's difficult, but you're here now, breathe easy now, your family now, we'll take care of you, welcome to this, this robust and like age-long debate and conversation where you will, your humanity will be welcomed, and your experience will improve the marketplace. That's a welcome letter. That's how you welcome students. That's how you set them at ease, how you bring them into the fold. This type of like firebrand political branding that like went into this letter was just ludicrous to me. I was like, I was like, is this, this either this is for your donors or for someone, someone somewhere said the University of Chicago wasn't, um, didn't take a stance hard enough on this thing. And they were like, well, we'll show you and put in the welcome letter, which I'm certain they knew would of course be leaked to the rest of the public. And of course, find itself pulling the university into this conversation, which I think is a shame because I really do think that if your university is under Title IX investigation, if your university has had, when I was there, had several scandals around racially insensitive parties, acts of people dressing up as in, in, in caricatures of other races, like the most classic and canonical problems around offensive speech or racist, sexist, et cetera, things happening. If you have that going on your campus, and the internet exists, so most students who Google your school can know that, then you should use your letter to be like, hey, I know this thing has been said about us. These things are happening. We have an obligation to keep our students safe, physically, psychologically, emotionally, and we take that seriously. We want to educate you broadly defined and prepare you to some degree for the job market and steward your growth in a flourishing way to be a productive citizen of our republic. Like, that's a way you... Welcome, people, (laughs) I would think. And so when I see this letter, I'm just confused. How did you think this happened, that this conversation got into a place where all the things you just named that happened on many campuses, so racially insensitive Mm -hmm. costumes, we're having Halloween coming up. You know, I'm sorry to learn that one of the professors at New York University, where I happen to teach, has invited, you know, one of those firebrands to talk about Halloween costumes and 
Mm -hmm. Last week we saw Megyn Kelly on national television proclaiming that blackface was okay. And it's actually really interesting to me that this conversation, as you said, it's perennial. It keeps on coming up. And then there's a kind of shock wave where part of the country seems to say, oh, this is an overreaction or... I don't even know what this is about, as if this hadn't happened over and over and over again. So how do you think this happened? The university then decided to say, we're going to go in this direction and not include one sentence in the words you just used to say, hey, we admitted you, we're committed to your flourishing here, your well-being here. This is our prime priority. Everything else, of course, follows from that. Why did they flip that around and said, we're going to make sure there are no trigger warnings, there are no safe spaces? It seems like an odd choice. Well, I think that it speaks to, I think it speaks to a couple of things. So to address the first thing about our cultural amnesia around black space, that, that also confuses me to no end. It is actually, it's actually one of those things that like, I, as a researcher, am always confused by is how the general public continues, despite having access to literally almost all of the information that exists in the world at the tip of our fingertips in our incredibly privileged society, continues to forget the most basic things and to continue to argue the same basic things over again. It boggles me. But I mean, the, the conversation around blackface or offensive costumes, I really think is often a bubbling up of a, of a more base conversation about like how much time and effort do I want to spend thinking about how other people experience the world. So one of the things I study is oppression. And part of being privileged and having a privilege is that you just don't have to think, you don't have to carry the mental load of thinking about how other people feel or certain people feel. And that when you tell young people, well, you should really be considerate of your costumes and perhaps not try to offend others, there's just always this incredible backlash that happens amongst certain people where they're like, well, now I have to be careful about what I say and I don't want to hurt other people's feelings. And, you know, I think of, of the minority in believing that these people are good-natured people, that people genuinely don't want to hurt other people's feelings. They're not just, like, there are the people in the world who exist to just, uh, who, whose job it is to be provocative. But most people, most people who wear offensive costumes or blackface on, on, on college campuses are not just, like, these, not out there, like, out and about, like, Klansmen hiding on campus. They are, in fact, just people who, don't, who quite frankly, don't know what they're doing. And it's unfortunate, it's truly unfortunate. And I, I think universities in particular have a responsibility to create the citizens of tomorrow. And the citizens of tomorrow have to have a multicultural sense. They have to take on the load and the strain. And I say this not as a person who is like overly optimistic, but as a person who takes on the load and strain of thinking what other people think about, think about how other people feel often. Part of being a black person in America is thinking about how white people feel all the time, constantly. And in fact, the problem, the stress of doing so is toxic on many black people's bodies, on many women's bodies, and yet we continue to do so because our livelihood depends upon it. And so when we ask someone to perhaps think about what they're going to do before they do it, or think about what they're going to say before they say it, we're not doing so out of a desire here to like create a witch hunt of some sort, um, to keep with the holiday theme, um, but instead to kind of ease that burden to uh, leave the burden on us because it's the one we spend all the time. Oh. Can you stay right there? This is actually really important. I really appreciate you being on the podcast, and I get the irony of me asking you to explain sort of what it means to have been a student at the University of Chicago, and you're saying it's not really... You, you do this all day. You think about what it means to be, you know, a student of color at a majority, you know, white research institution, and then to be met with this kind of... We're not going to acknowledge you in a way, but rather we're going to use the words that have been for things that actually like a safe space, which is not what I think the Dean understood it to be. I think a safe space is not actually nah. just to sit in a room with hot chocolate, you know, or something like that. It's actually a room that's empowering and affirmative, which is the university itself in its entirety. Yeah. And it's most ideal version of itself is one that, that creates a space that pulls out, that creates a floor for these conversations. So one of the things I really want to get across in my article and that I continually left out of this conversation, I would argue without like overgrandizing my own point that this is perhaps the one of the most important points when it comes to diversity and inclusion and the conversation about safe spaces, this whole conversation that gets completely left out is the fact of the matter is that freedom of speech is not equally accessible to all people. The fact of the matter is I do think about what I'm going to say. Code switching exists, people of color, all people of all different types of races and backgrounds by virtue of the power structure that we're in can and cannot speak. 
and can and cannot tell their own stories. And so like when I talk about safe spaces or talk about the spaces that were created for me to be able to grow and be nurtured on University of Chicago's campus, I'm not talking about places that are just healing spaces. Healing spaces are also crucially important. Like you need spaces where people can go, feel comfortable. They need bastions where they don't have to deal with that load, which is why we created houses or places on campuses for different identities because they're places where people can go and and offload that load. But there's also a need to create the non-healing spaces, the classroom spaces, to be ones where everyone everyone feels empowered to speak, knowing that power is not being equally distributed. To lean on my philosophy background a little bit, called epistemic injustice, is that the truth-making power that we have in our society is meted out by race, class, and power in your position. So my professor can say things that people believe to be true, that I can say things, and they believe to be false based on our position. I'm a student. This person has a PhD. The ergo, even though I may be saying the exact same thing, some people believe him and not me. Or he's a man. I'm not a man. Or this person's white. I'm black, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a real threat. So this is a real important challenge, at least, for, for freedom of speech that is completely and totally left out of the conversation. And it boggles me. We know, scientifically, we know that women are less likely, less heard in the public sphere. But that is, is a problem. Can we stay with this for a moment? I'm really glad you bring this up. It's about sort of power and how it informs when this word is used, free speech. It has this kind of assumption. There's a blank slate or this other metaphor, there's a marketplace of idea that's totally mm-hmm. unregulated, which is really just a metaphor. It, isn't, it doesn't exist anywhere. No market has ever been unregulated. And a couple other people on the podcast have also talked about that, about power. So if you stay with that for a moment, you said you're a student, you're a black student, you're in a different position in a classroom. Every classroom negotiates that constantly. And the university mm-hmm. is actually aware to exercise that. And in some ways, This should be where we're aware of that, that actually someone who comes in with a lot of training has a PhD. You have a degree in, you know, bioethics. I would defer to you on a lot of questions about, you know, relations between disease and public behavior or things like that or whatever specialization you have. Mm -hmm. So the university is supposed to negotiate that. So why do you think this drops out of the conversation so quickly then, this dimension, which is so obvious to most people Except it doesn't seem to be obvious when the word free speech is used, which is meant to say something very different. It's meant to just say one thing that anybody can speak. And if you have a problem with that, you are against it. Yeah, I think this is a thing that really, I think, crops up a lot in American culture is what we can do, like the capacity we have, opportunity. It's, it's a We often phrase it and talk about the hypothetical possibility of something happening without any real air or even desire to look at how often it does happen, right? Like, women can speak in these meetings. Technically, they have vocal cords. And you're like, oh, well, that's, if that's it, then fine. I mean, honestly, I mean, people could drink from whatever drinking fountain they wanted to. There would, of course, be consequences. Those consequences are real. And, but, but we don't want to talk about the consequences, I think, in many cases. We don't want to talk about the fact that there are people who have power when they feel like that power is endangered and they make the carrying call, the, the cry of, oh, no, this is happening to us. It drowns out all the other cries. And that's what these protests on college campuses are really about, is that you have communities of people who historically and continually and systemically are being silenced and have been silenced for a very long time, organizing, coming together, doing the hard work of trying to make their claims known. Like that's, that's protest, that's showing up. It's not easy work, right? We can't just appeal to a university and say, protect us. We have to show up and go through the proper channels and even then often are, are denied. And the consequences of us doing that, of protesting, as a consequence on our health. The thing that boggles me about universities, at least the boggles me about the conversation with universities, is there's a lot of short shift to how hard it actually is to survive as a person in an institution that wasn't designed for you. That like if I have a problem, for example, University of Chicago often closes its dining halls on Saturdays. I'm a low-income student. I don't have a lot of money. If you know dining halls close, I'm just not going to eat, or I'm going to eat very little. And this is a big problem for a lot of first-generation low-income students. If I have that problem, I just can't simply call up the board or just schedule a meeting with the dean or just show up and be like, fix this thing, right? I'll get no response. At worst, I will get an antagonistic response about how the point why it's closed so we can explore Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's living with that strain already. And then also the stigma of being like, I don't have money to eat on campus. 
And then there's the, going, there's the actual energy it takes to then go find other people who can't eat on campus to create a group that works together, the Socioeconomic Diversity Alliance, and then to work with, to galvanize enough, to make enough of a stink to then get the dean to talk to you. And then you have to work and move people to give you what you want. Like that is the way in which most people who are marginalized have been able to make change for themselves happen. And so I think that there's a lot of that conversation is entirely left out of the conversation about universities because people don't want that. I mean, to be not flippant, but like quite frank about it, I think people who feel like their speech is being imperiled because they can't punch down anymore truly are like, I should be allowed to do that, period. Like there are constitutional limits on free speech. And I was like, I don't think there should be. And I should be able to say what I want to say, dress how I want to dress and do whatever I want. And I'm like, I agree with you. I also believe that. But I learned basically the day I learned that I was black, that that wasn't going to happen without questions and bounds. And for some people, that's never happened to them. I didn't think this was possible because this wasn't my experience. But I learned this at the University of Chicago. There are people who had just never been like, wait, so I have to think about everything I say before I say it. I have to care what people, how people interpret my mannerisms, the way I speak. And I'm like, yes. And for you, it just means that, and the consequences for them not doing that is you don't get to hurt other people the way you're accustomed to, or you may experience some social stigma or shame for saying the wrong word, right? But at the end of the day, we must remind ourselves that like being called a racist or having people think a thing you did is racist is not tantamount to being a victim of intergenerational historical racial oppression. So you're saying it's a false equivalence to say that people feel, oh, my speech has been restricted and to say, well, you just gave an explanation of how difficult it's actually to make yourself heard in an institution that isn't set up for many reasons. There's stigma, you have to organize, mm -hmm. you have to use your voice that you could maybe use for better, more productive things in a way if there had already been a policy that, of course, people have access to the dining halls, to the meal plan, then you wouldn't have to spend your energy doing that. But maybe, you know, sort of metaphorically speaking, study physics or calculus or philosophy or whatever your major is. So there's a kind of university obligation you're saying they should fix some structural issues so it is not on minority students or who are left out of these kinds of policies to have to use their voice for that. And then you're also saying, it's really a mischaracterization for people to say, I cannot use my free speech anymore. I can't believe I'm being policed. I can't believe I have to think about what I say because that is common for what you're saying, sort of, you know, African-Americans, basically. And yeah, I, and of communication in general. Like, it's just, it's right. just a basic like, thing that, that like, I'm, I'm sorry, it is unfortunate. But, like, sure, the government should not, again, I am not pro-censorship, right? The government should not kick down your door because you said something the way you said it or because of who you associate with. Like that to me is a grave miscarriage of your privacy and how First Amendment works. The First Amendment does not shield us from consequences, which is a thing that everyone knows. And like, well, I, Cameron, really... I can tell you that the government does not even shield you from consequences. Not everybody knows that. I've had so many conversations about free speech. We've had conversations about the engineer at Google who got fired, about Megyn <laughs> Kelly who was asked the tune of $68 million to search for another job elsewhere. And people think, oh my God, the poor woman has been restricted in her capacity to speak freely. That is not the case. She was able to say something, she said it, and there was a consequence. So yeah. it's not a common assumption. It's actually interesting. When there's a consequence, people get really upset. Yeah, I guess that's, it's true. It is surprising to me that that continues. It is deeply surprising to me. Because I, I think a lot of and I want to be clear that there's no, like, value or inherent goodness in experiencing oppression at all. But I would say that from my experience of being a marginalized person, it's like a, such a quick thing you pick up. You, like, pick it up almost instantaneously. Like, I remember, oh, if I wear clothes like this, if I wear a hoodie and jeans, people treat me one way. If I wear a suit, people treat me differently. Even if I'm saying the exact same argument with the same inflection, with the same logical sets, mannerisms, etc., if I give the same speech, if I change the way I'm just what I'm wearing, people will interpret what I'm saying differently. If I change the way that I'm speaking, if I code switch, people treat me differently. These are things that, like, I think can, I knew. Can you do me a favor? And yeah. I apologize for this, but you know, I, I've learned what code switching means. Can you just give us a mm -hmm. little explanation, not, or sort of explain yeah. what that means and how that is so important in the university, where you're brought into a research university? And maybe you weren't raised by academics or just having academic. Most kids are not, actually, I think, generally speaking. But what does oh, yeah. I mean, mean in this context? 
Yeah, so I would say that that code switching is like changing dialects. So I think I think one of the things that people often don't think about in the U.S. is that in academic spaces, in uh, I work in a research policy think tank now, research organization now, and I also you know went to the University of Chicago, and so there's a way in which people talk about things. I think that probably the biggest obvious for code switching for me is the is nominalizations. People, it's a process by which you basically take verbs and turn them into nouns. And you just use the, and it, it's it's completely and totally unnecessary. It confuses language and makes things very unclear. But it's like a, a hundred percent academic thing to do. And you just take words that could otherwise you're like, oh, I'm I'm verbalizing blah blah. You're just saying this. You're, you don't need to create another like a longer version of that word. Right. But that's how universities function. In many cases, you write sentences that are that could be summed up in four words into like ten words. For me, code switching was changing my inflection or. Speaking in a way that just made the people around me more comfortable, that was more accustomed to the, the culture of the university. One of the things that I think is a huge problem at universities is they don't acknowledge they have a culture of their own at all. That there's a culture that exists in universities that is distinct from the actual intellectual rigor of whatever they're arguing. There's a history and a way we've done things and a way we've codified information and we've decided the ways in which people sound smart. And that's different from being smart. <laughs> And it's really hard, I think, for people to break out of that heuristic, and universities are kind of an institutionalized version of that heuristic. So if I walk in with a student tie and I describe cultural value-dependent realism, um, the subject matter of my senior thesis, and I explain a bunch of Kantian and Aristotelian values and talk about philosophy, people are like, oh, wow, that person's really, really smart. Even if the thing I'm talking about means absolutely nothing or may, or almost indecipherably unclear, that's just kind of how. Of course, I was immediately impressed and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to, I really have to keep up the Kantian Aristotelian categories of how to produce knowledge. So you're totally exactly. right. It is, it's a sort of markers for intelligence. And those are the ones we accept in the university yes. right away. And universities are quite literally in a crisis right now because there are different ways of thinking, which... People continuously talk about being the bread and butter of how university is supposed to work, but there are ways that challenge the very core of it. It's not just like, oh, well, there's Aristotelian philosophers, there are Kantian philosophers, well, are you, you believe in Mill? Like, no, 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 no. It's like Western philosophy as an outgrowth of a colonial and a deep white patriarchal background. Is that a thing that we need to be focusing our entire curriculum around? Is the Western canon itself the only canon we can teach? Is there enough room to teach multiple canons? Like, these are questions, meta questions about net knowledge that some people are unwilling to have that conversation. Well, they and they see that, that as, a, they as, as they... an affront on their entire institution. Well, this is interesting, right, because they think the university contains its own capacity for critique. So they say, you know, the master's tools can dismantle the master's house, which Audre Lorde yes. disputed. And they say, you've been equipped with enough Aristotle and Kant to do this critique of the institution of the university, which promotes a certain type of knowledge. And you're saying, mm -hmm. I have this capacity for several reasons. One of them was because you went to the University of Chicago to critique the way in which knowledge is presented and the way in which I'm supposed to think and behave. And you're saying this, yeah. this critical piece is... I think the most important part of the university and what's strange to me is when what your letter did when you said, look, this part didn't work for me, that the university kind of comes back with so much force and says, well, it's too bad it doesn't work for you. We know best how it would work. Rather yeah, than the deep irony of a university that has historically never had students like me, not seeing me and people like me as an opportunity to grow and change and understand how to be accessible and how to build new roads to this marketplace of ideas should it exist, but instead responds in a hostile manner, in a way that bans the very tools that we have created to be a part of the conversation. Trigger warnings exist solely so that people who have the closest experience to a topic, subject matter, can partake in it. Safe spaces exist so that people who have maybe have PTSD, who've experienced sexual assault, who've experienced violence or racial trauma, can know that there are safeguards. This is the basis of how I as a facilitator and how ethicists think about issues is that if you want something to work, there have to be contingency plans. And like in many cases, the safe, the safe spaces are spaces where the, um, the actual rules of discourse are made very, very clear. I think that often people think of these, they mischaracterize safe spaces just like they mischaracterize college students as these babies who want everything handed to them, who want to be coddled. 
But many of the students that we get that come to universities now, because of the nature of how universities have changed and the relationship between students have changed and diversity has flourished in our country, like have seen a lot before they got to the university. I had seen a lot before I got to university. Racism wasn't a new concept to me. Sexism wasn't a new concept. Poverty wasn't a new concept to me. And so when people are like, oh, you just want to limit the number of ideas you were said to you or things that may hurt your feelings. And I was like, no, this is trauma. I carry with me, just like just as my four mothers before me carry with them, the trauma of being raised and being steeped in the actual harms of a capitalist society that used to own my people. Like that's real. I was like universities were created in the time and have been continued to be created in the time where people like me weren't allowed to be there. So it's not like universities are being nefarious. I'm gonna go out on, on a good faith effort and say they're not being nefarious. It just wouldn't make sense. If I built a whole town full of people who only use wheelchairs and then I invited a bunch of people who don't use wheelchairs to it, there may have been some situations where things are a little awkward at times, where things don't quite fit. But universities seem to be, the University of Chicago at least, seem to be unwilling to acknowledge that there are real differences. That like, it's not racist to be race conscious, to acknowledge the fact that black students or low-income students or women or people who've been marginalized, that marginalization creates a real difference between the students who've traditionally been there and the students who haven't. I think and then you, you have to bridge that difference. I think what you just said, this last sentence, what you said, it's not racist to be race conscious. I think that's very yeah. helpful for a lot of people who somehow would take your argument and say, we get that. People come from different places. This country has a terrible legacy and a terrible history of exclusion, of discrimination, of exploitation and murder. These universities have now for, you know, for better or for worse, for maybe not quite 50 years mm -hmm. admitted Students who are not just white men. Many of these universities were really, really integrated only over the last 50 years or so. This is maybe the third generation going there. But then I think this point you just made to say to be aware of that, to be conscious, does not mean to buy into some kind of binary where it's these students versus those students. It's actually saying this is an opportunity to make the university really work in the spirit it was meant to be intended to give the best and the brightest, as they would say at the University of Chicago, the opportunity to contribute to the discussion. Mm -hmm. I love this metaphor to build more roads to the marketplace of idea rather than to pull up the, you know, planks and gateways and sort of say this is close to it. And it's strange to me that what you're saying, that the, that the, the discussion around this ended up in this place that this incredibly condescending dismissal of student concerns which I think has something to do with what you kept, this kind of this cultural amnesia or this kind of re reluctance to acknowledge that there are differences at all. It's noteworthy that these discussions come back again and again. And as you noted, I mean, I lived through them in the 90s. And sometimes you think you're living in a complete deja vu of the whole, except that some things have changed that it's not the 90s anymore. So you would think in 25 or 30 years, people would have actually recognized, oh, we, we will not repeat these errors again. It's true. I think that you would think that people would have, I mean, I think back to how people catastrophize protests and the, the idea that students are, are upset. And I think back to the 60s, and I think back to when students were doing real demonstrations, and we were in, a, in states of, of real turmoil. And, and, and I'm like, are we just being silly right now? Is it, I mean, do we have, are we, have we forgotten that there are way, way, way more extreme ways to address the type of, I would argue, mismanagement. Like, there are so many, for example, there are so many universities that are under Title IX lawsuits right now. Universities have been, have been mishandling sexual assault for a very, very long time. There are ways to respond to that that are through the quote-unquote proper channels. And there are protests, they're organizing, and there are ways to escalate beyond that. And often people in the news media, making it seem as if students are taking the most radical positions possible. And I'm like, no, actually, this is very mundane. This is extremely mundane, given the severity of the situation. I mean, given the, the victim blaming and the truly horrid prevalence of sexual assault on college campuses, given the magnitude of that problem, this response is by definition tame. And also, protests is a form of speech. And I find it so interesting that people talk about unfettered free speech right. as if it actually exists. 
And I was like, I don't think there's a such thing as unfettered free speech for most marginalized people. There are always consequences. There are always risks. There's always social conditioning. There have been laws. There have been ways to limit the speech that may not be codified in law, but they exist. But they also exist in our very language. That like when I have a conversation with someone and they can pearl slurs at me or they can dismiss my trauma by a ad hominem, right? Those things are equally accessible. I once had someone, I was always race conscious. I wasn't always gender conscious. I was, I'm a work in progress like everyone else. And I had someone say to me before I had ever really thought about this deeply. And they were like, list out the slurs or offensive phrases that you can say to a man about being a man or to a white person about being white. And it drew pause because I could, I could get like maybe one or two things at best. And they were like, okay, now think about all the ways you can shame both men and women for being feminine in any way. And I was like, oh, that's a long list. Or you can shame anyone for having dark complexion. Oh, that's a long list too. And this person said to me, well, that's power. Like that's how power manifests. And knowing that to be true, we have to think about how we can create conversations and dialogue that address that fundamental historical inequity. If we pretend it doesn't exist, we pretend everything's honky-dory, then we're going to continue to fall into the same continual trap of people being sold a dream of unfettered free speech, being sold a dream of rigorous, fair discourse. And then you arrive like I did and have it thrown in your face and realize that, oh no, this is actually, this place is actually as far ahead as they think they are. They actually have never, have not done the work for my existence yet. They've invited me here and I, I have a whole reason for why I think universities are interested in diversity. And I assure you, it is not simply because of the moral rightness of it, but they have invited me here because they need me here. That's clear but they have not made the proper structures to keep me here, to keep me happy, to keep me safe. Right. And that's disappointing to say the least. And I feel like a lot of students of color, as I've, as I've gone around the country and talked to different students, feel this tacitly and it's heavy. And I personally, I never want to discourage education going to universities for young students of color because education is beautiful and it has done great things in my life. However, the question remains, is the trauma worth it? Like, I, I graduated. I have my degree. I have my job in D.C. But for all the young people who didn't graduate, who went and it was too much, who went and were scared off campus, who went, who were intimidated off campus, who cracked because they're regular human beings like everyone else, was it worth it to now be saddled with a momentous amount of debt, no degree, and to heal from the trauma and the uncertainty and the imposter syndrome that comes from a place that is not designed to keep you psychologically, physically, and emotionally safe. So what would you say What would you say to a young student like that? You're saying it's going to be really hard, you're saying. You had an impact, I think, with your piece published in Vox. I think people resonated with a lot of people, and I think a lot of people took it and said, oh, there's another way of looking at this issue here, and this letter was framed in a way as if it was it's either or. You take a position in favor of these, what you are calling the conditions of learning, <laughs> Or you're just going to keep on doing it the way you're doing it. So what would you say? I'm going to ask you two questions. What would you say to a 16-year-old high school junior right now who's contemplating going to college? And then the next question I'm going to ask you, what would you say to a college professor who is hmm. listening to you? I would say to the 16-year-old, college is really fun. And you're going to meet incredible people who are going to challenge you. I love 16-year-olds. I used to teach high school students. I was like, the world is just, it's so much bigger than you think it is. And it gets bigger every day. And that universities are a nexus point, like a hub for you to experience different realities that you've never even considered. And that makes it, that opportunity in itself makes college incredible. However, universities are like everything else in the world. They have histories. They are not what you see on TV. Since this person is 16 years old, they probably never watched Boy Meets World. But I would say if you've ever seen a show that has anything of a college, like abandon the notion that college is going to be like that. For watch, better or for watch, worse. They watch Dear White People. There, there we go. go. They, they, they already have a good idea of how it's going to go. Um, it's going to be difficult, both academically. You're going to be pushed. You're going to grow. And that's really important. And universities are there for that. But it's going to be difficult in ways that you aren't going to grow. You're going to be faced with questions that seem either blatantly or painfully obvious to you or be pulled into intellectually dishonest arguments that kind of alienate you from yourself. And I think that sometimes you'll be faced with arguments that seem like they have intellectual value on their face, 
but their novelty is not real. Like white supremacy, not a new concept. Just like phrenology, some things should be left to the past and these things will be thrown at you and they will continue to thrown at you because that's the world that we live in. But you will find people, you find your people, find your space, find your voice. There are people who will not want to hear what you have to say. Find people who do and then say it louder. Find home. That like universities are, their diversity of them, well, the true fact of the matter is they are diverse in the number of places where you can find pockets for you. For me, I found it in the oddest of places. Like we had like an internet forum where we just kind of said nice things to each other and we, and it was good. Find an echo chamber of people who tell you you're excellent. And then find a place where you hear ideas that aren't your own. And then keep those two places as far away from each other as possible so that you can go to one place, hear some ideas and be like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to mull on that. Do I think that, how does that resonate with my experience, with my identity? Excellent. And then find the people who are going to be like, hey, no matter what you are, how you are, how you grow or how you change, I'm going to be there for you. Find those people. Those people will keep you safe. Is it kind of like a dual recipe? Like use this place to grow, challenge yourself, learn, and be aware and sure that there are going to be impediments to that kind of growth. They're going to be things that are structurally inherent to it. So you have to find your ways to work around that. Yeah. yeah. And if you're going to fall in love with the university, I fell in love with the University of Chicago. They're going to fall out of love with it real fast. Um, and you're going to have a complicated relationship. No universities are no longer considered to be parents. But I really do feel like, in many ways, the University of Chicago was like a parent for me in all sense of the words. And the way in which when you first start out, it nurtures you, you're growing, you're like, oh my God, this is the place, is the greatest place, the greatest thing ever. And then as you get to your second or third or fourth year, you're like, wait, hold on. And you realize, just like everything else, this place is a history. It has its own flaws, its own warts, and in many cases, will let you down and disappoint you. But I think what you did, I said this before, I think the piece you've written and published, I think, and you said this yourself, I think it's an honor and makes the University of Chicago proud. It makes the University of Chicago look great to have a student who actually was able to take on the institution in a coherent way and say, it's not just my personal experience, I'm going to extrapolate from that and say this is what universities should and ought to do. I think that's <clears> actually a testament to, this is what students I think should go through, this is the process of growth. You will distance yourself from an institution and you're meant to outgrow it in a certain way. This leads me to the people who stay in the university for a lifetime, college professors, so what would you say <laughs> to them? <laughs> I would say to college professors, You're never going to stop growing. I think people who are college professors are really into that. They're like really into nurturing and growing themselves and their students. And I think that for the profession is a noble one. I also think that as a college professor, you need to take your eye slightly away from your students and actually to your institution itself and acknowledge the threats that you yourself are under, the changes in, in ways people get tenure, the changes in the university from a special type of moral institution or education to more of a business, that these things are important that you need to pay attention to because they are affecting the way you're after your students. Students are being sold education. Whether for good or for worse, they may seem more entitled, they may seem more impatient, but they also are paying through their nose to be there. And they are paying for one of the most nebulous products ever. Like while I love being critically analytical and being able to disentangle complex ideas and put them back together again, I have no idea how much that skill is worth. To me personally, it's priceless. But on the market, I have no idea how much it's worth. I do know how much University of Chicago education costs, though. I do know how much people pay out of pocket, and I do know that universities are getting more and more polarized in their population. That you're getting students who are extremely smart from extremely disadvantaged backgrounds, and you're getting students who are also very smart, but also from extremely privileged backgrounds who so can pay the full tuition. And that you have to be aware, as a college professor, it is not enough for you just to be really good at teaching the thing you teach. It's not enough to just be really, really empathetic, but you have to be critical to the structure you're placed in, because that structure is changing your relationship to your students. And let that me ask I you another question of people who have really fallen victim to this media narrative that the university is out of control, there's no more free speech, that every class is you know, studied with trigger warnings. I've been in the university for a very long time. I worked in the administration for quite a long time. I no longer work there. I've never seen a trigger warning, but I've seen a lot of people being respectful and saying the conditions of our conversation are that I would give you a heads up if something 
potentially very, very offensive is going to come up next. I would not put that in front of anybody. I don't think that's actually teaching. I think that's shock effect, which has no purpose in teaching to shock somebody. But so what would you say to where can the professors who are kind of befuddled or seem to be a little bit hapless to me? They're like, oh, I don't understand what's happening in my university. I don't understand mm -hmm. what the students are so upset about. And I sort of thought, well, their students, they're sitting in your class. You could find out. But let me make up this professor who says, I teach biology 101. It's 650 students in a lecture hall. I cannot talk to every single student. How do I figure out what is really going on here and not get this distorted narrative? I mean, so I would say that that's, that is a very real challenge, right? I was definitely privileged to go to the University of Chicago where our biological halls are only like 150 students tops. But when you have this large influx of students, I think that you can look to your institution, look to your administration to create spaces for you to be able to interact authentically with your students. Office hours are one thing, but I really think that there's a better need for more cohesive activities for you to be able to like just talk to your students outside of school, like outside of class. There can be forums. I love university forums. I love situations in which people who don't normally talk together get to talk about issues and talk about things that they care about and humanize each other in the process. I think more of those from your administration is important. I think that you, as a professor, can't do everything. That just is very real. Also, know your students and know your campus is not like everyone else. Know that most campuses actually are not under this, like, disinviting speakers. In 2018, one of the things that we should know for a fact is that because we have access to rapid information all the time, that we can blow almost anything out of proportions, and there is Nothing that I would argue is more clearly blown out of proportions than the college campus crisis. It continues and has happened every generation, and it will probably continue to happen every generation. But we can zoom in on one institution, one place, and a small town and say, see how people are so intolerant here? And you're like, it's like America is finally unmasking itself to itself, and it doesn't like what it sees, and so it's running away screaming on a regular basis. <laughs> it's like, no, this is how we've always been. It's okay. Let's just do the work to be better. We don't have to fix We won't fix it in one night. There's no way we will. But I, th I think you're right. I think this is a repetition of certain things. I do have a worry that there's a larger point that this is also an attack on universities as the arbiter of truth, of scientific knowledge, of facts. Mm -hmm. And I think that this narrative is used to say, look, these universities are out of control. They don't allow real research anymore to undermine the very simple fact that, you know, what you studied was fact-based knowledge, actually, right? You were a science major and you were mm -hmm. a philosophy major. It's not just all made up. It's not all someone's liberal theory. It's actually based in rigorous research. So I think that behind it is another complicated story that we're living through right now in America, this kind of attack on elitism, where... You go to your doctor, you want him to be a real elitist who's been trained that she knows exactly what she's talking about. But somehow, and everything else, like, we don't really believe science, and maybe this is all... So I think this is another story happening. I think, that's, I think that's true. I think that what's complicated, it's hard to disentangle elitism from knowing what you're talking about, right? I mean, a doctor is a fine example. There are lots of excellent surgeons. You're good at the thing you do, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know everything else, right? I mean, the, the prime example is the rampant amount of body shaming or fat phobia in medicine. It's a huge problem. It's a systemic problem. People often, in order to make the claim that there's such thing as a systemic problem, have to delegitimize a field's ability to do what it does. Right. And it's like, no, systemic problems just exist, right? Universities have a systemic problem, have a lot of systemic problems. That does not mean, however, that everything they do is trash. <laughs> like, and it's, it's hard to hold that nuance well, you have to hold that nuance. Universities typically exalt, center, and something I would argue overvalue the voices of dead old white men. That's all that's true. However, I also am quite fond of Kant. These are two things that we can hold at the same time and say that while it is true, I have to leave the university to read Patricia Collins, Audre Lorde, to read the works of black feminists, to like get that narrative. And that narrative should be a university. The fact that it's not is a travesty. That does not, however, mean that universities themselves are irredeemably broken or the systemic bias between them is toxic to the point where their ability to tell fact from fiction is undone. It is that there are, again, more roads to the marketplace, 
And we have to build those roads. Whether or not black feminism and black queer theory will clash against the Western canon and both will evaporate, I don't know. But I do know that, that there's not even a conversation about black queer feminism outside of perhaps these small niche classes about them. And yet I can find, I can tell you as a bioethicist, I can find Western philosophy and the most rigorous of sciences that seem to have nothing to do with philosophy. And so we have to be able to acknowledge that there's a sociology that exists, there are social norms that exist within science, within all fields, and that when we are serious about it, and I hope that we are serious about this, we can take our class, our power, our racial analysis, and apply that to these structures without destroying their validity. And it's a hard thing to work on, because I want to be critical of universities, but I also don't want people to be like, well, universities are a liberal fallacy, and thus all research ever made is false, and all this research proving without a shadow of a doubt that black people are people is false, and we can just say whatever we want. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We have swung the door back in my face. Right. And so I'm always, I'm always pro, like I said before, racial consciousness, power consciousness, acknowledging history, acknowledging fallibility, and being honest about human beings. And I am not pro freedom without thought, thoughtless freedom or unfettered access to grade our debate, to allow the voices that have historically been able to speak who have power, find ways to reify their power. I'm not for that. I think you just gave this incredibly powerful kind of capsule argument of what university education should allow you to teach, to say that knowledge is constructed, nonetheless expertise exists. So what you just said was really a great statement that you're a you know, product of two of the greatest research universities in the country. It's actually the two universities that were founded in this country as explicitly research institutions, the University of Chicago and Johns Hopkins University. Mm -hmm. What's next for you? What are you going to do? What's your work on now? And are you going to be what we just said? We should just type it up and you should publish that next. I think for, for me, I'm going to continue living my dual life of being both a quiet researcher of police and the state and being a public advocate for diversity and inclusion. I think that for me, I work in criminal justice. I want to imagine the world that I want to live in. For me, the University of Chicago, while I love research institutions, one of their critical bounds is they work with what is. They work with their critique is how things are. And for me, I want to imagine what things can be. I want to do the hard work of trying to create and generate new methods of it. And so that looks like to me imagining what it would look like to have a canon for schools that actually centers the voices of the most marginalized people. Or what it looks like to have policing in a world where we're focused on accountability and rehabilitation as opposed to punitive action and retribution. So I'm going to continue trying to find new avenues, new intersections to kind of play with, because I think this is an important thing. And while I am a product of two great research institutions, I'm also the product of an incredibly empathetic and wonderful black mother. And I want to honor that history by continuing to find a way for those two institutions, my mother's wonderful teaching and the universities I was a part of, to find a world where they can coexist. I like that. That actually is what... I just reduced to sort of, this is the University of Chicago taught you to do this. You said your upbringing, your mother taught you how to think this way as well. So I, I appreciate that. So Cameron, I'm going to include a couple links on the website to things you've published at the Urban Institute now. And then mm -hmm. we'll, put a, we'll put a link to your original piece about the University of Chicago as well, which is still relevant. So it's still important for people to read. Yeah, I honestly cannot understand. I really would be remiss if I did not credit the other students in Chicago people who I was in many numerous conversations with in safe spaces who really helped crystallize these ideas for me and make this clear for me that like, I didn't get to choose the title of my article. And I was like, this is a long title and a weird title, but really it's not the safe spaces. It's the people in the spaces that helped me get to college. And those people, they had insight. They have a beautiful way of seeing the world and that only in those spaces were they able to give me that insight. And so I, every day I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Well, and, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And, you know, my humble aspiration and hope is that maybe, you know, we'll have a, a couple of 16-year-olds listen to this who say you are headed to university and take some, you know, feel empowered by what you just said. So I really, really appreciate it. So thank, oh, you, thank, so, you. thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I hope we'll get to speak again. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.